for having us. Uh, so a couple things. First, we're really happy to be joining you here in Chushage, colonizes Montreal, coming all the way from Tongva territory for me, colonized as Los Angeles and... And uh, Wendage, colonized as Quebec City. So um, we're really grateful to be here on Haudenosaunee land. And thank you all for coming and being here oh with God. us. Oh my God, seriously. Like, I feel like I'm going to cry. Like, I haven't seen this many, well, okay, I, honestly, I can't really see you because of the lights and my vision's really bad, but I feel like there's a lot of people in this room. There are, and I can see every single one of you because I have bionic eyes, and so <laughs> this is so great, and I feel really grateful to, to be, gosh, in a space with so many people. I mean, we love doing live shows, and we haven't had the ability to do one until now since mm -hmm. since October 2019 yeah yeah so thank you for being at our first live show so to start did everyone hear Christian Freeland apologize yes wasn't that so on behalf of white that, Western women? That was women, the right applause, by the way. That was great. <laughs> on behalf of white Western women, I am so pleased to see that she's right. We should be always, always apologizing. Yeah, so if you didn't hear the applause, that's what she, the applause, the apology, that is what she said. She said um, that <laughs> as a white Western woman, uh, the thing to do whenever you make this kind of gaffe, which was, if, you, if you're not caught up, the gaffe of she was responding at the Brookings Institute to someone uh, from uh, a state in Africa who said, Canada, your aid is being reduced um, to African states as a result of more aid going to Ukraine and uh, Russia's knocking on our door. What's the issue here? She said a bunch of racist stuff in response, saying that he should be willing to die for his democracy and uh, not, you know, come to Canada for help because that's what the Ukrainians did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not really true, um, and also super racist. Uh, and yeah, so she apologized by saying, like, look, as a white Western woman, I know that when we make gaffes like this, I'm, I should say. I should apologize and say in the first instance that I did not mean for you to take offense to that. <laughs> so, Christian Freeland, maybe she won't be the leader of the Liberal Party. I don't know. She seems a little bit worse at this than Justin Trudeau when she's off the cuff. Yeah, but it's mean, really hard to be worse than him. It's so hard. Yeah, yeah. Except that, like, at least when Justin Trudeau's off the cuff, He's like calling the far right like a bunch of no-nos and bozos. Do you remember that? Right? And so for anyone who's like Italian like I am, no-no doesn't mean grandfather in this case. It means kind of a bozo, right? <laughs> um, but it's very funny if you're an Italian to hear that. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, she's, she's, she's like, 
she's like deliciously chaotic <laughs> in the most like insufferable way possible. Mm-hmm. So she today was saying that um, we like the ministries, like she's a finance minister, right? Which is hard to remember because she's usually doing foreign affairs, but she's as the finance minister, she's telling ministries that you should not expect to receive more funding. Like if anything, if you're asking for any more money in any parts of your budget, you need to find a place to, to cut that. That's austerity. And what's so fascinating to me is, you know, the last three years, this government has created the largest cash transfer from the public purse to the private pur- purse in Canadian history, mm-hmm. right? So billions and billions of dollars went out through the wage subsidy. It went right to corporations to, to help us survive through like indentured servitude to our bosses. Thank you, Christopher Freeland and Bill Morneau. Um, and um, at the same time, they allowed for profits to like, you know, go, go wild, right? And so... The, the 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 inflation has obviously been a big problem. We're seeing massive, massive wealth inequality. And how much money did the poorest Canadians get? Do you know how much money did the poorest Canadians receive? Anyone in the audience? Not enough, but it, it's zero, infinitely less than not enough, mm-hmm. right? Because that suggests there's something. They got zero. Anybody that made $5,000 and less, they got zero, zero. So, I mean, I, like, I'm obviously a big critic of the Liberal Party and a big cr- critic of Christian Freeland, but it's so disgusting how we're supposed to forget just how regressive and, um, and harmful they are to average people because the real threat is Pierre Pauly ever. Yeah. I mean, and it's also, though, par for the course. Like, she is really comfortable with lying, clearly. And we don't have, like, a media establishment that's going to take a look at her comments and say, okay, but wait, you presided over this massive... Um, this massive wealth transfer in the same way that we don't have a, a media apparatus that's going to say, okay, if you're telling this guy that, you know, you didn't, like the Ukrainians didn't on their own, what is this website the government has set up that just says that you gave $600 million uh, to Ukraine plus soldiers? Plus soldiers, plus training, plus weapons. Like, come on, right? And so, I mean, at least she's consistent. <laughs> yeah, that's where we're at. So points to Freeland for being consistent. Do you know, Sandy, who else is consistent? The NDP? The British Columbia NDP. Well, the NDP. <laughs> I don't think you need the qualifier. No, you so don't. <laughs> okay. You so don't. Is everybody watching what's happening right now with Angeli Epidurai? Like literally right now, there like is literally a this live morning. press conference happening um, that we were like looking and then we realized that this room was full and so we were like, let's put that away and <laughs> come out here and do what we came here to do. But uh, there is a live press conference happening right now in Victoria, BC in front of the legislature. So where um, uh, Anjali Apadurai is going to be responding for the first time. Um, so yeah, what's going on? Oh, yeah, we should probably tell people. So if you haven't been watching, we did say a few episodes back that this was a race to watch. So uh, Anjali Apadurai, who is running for leadership of uh, the BCNDP and running on a radical platform, focused a lot on the climate crisis and making some radical changes. Nor predicted on the podcast that she... 
should probably uh, be a little bit nervous. Well, not that she should be nervous. She should know that uh, the NDP might uh, tank a, a race like that, uh, might try to get rid of a candidate like that. And uh, if, if you don't know, as of yesterday night, um, the BCNDP powers that be have decided to disqualify her from the race. Yeah, and I think it's really important to say what her sins were. So um, the, there's a group in British Columbia called the Dogwood Institute, and Dogwood is run by a guy called Kai Nagata. Some folks might know Kai or know of his work. Uh, he used to live in Quebec City, so that's kind of cool. Um, and they were encouraging their members to sign up to support Anjali. And this is not abnormal because the steelworkers were doing the exact same thing trying to get people to sign up for, to support David Eby because he's much better for forestry and resource extracted from the perspective of like more of it. <laughs> and so, um, so she signs, they, you know, people sign up. She, she registers some number of thousands of new members. It hasn't been made public, so we don't know what. And um, the EB campaign challenges every single member. Now, the NDP has this like boneheaded fucking rule that says that you can't have multiple party memberships. And so for those of us in Quebec, that's actually a big deal because if you're a member of Quebec Solidaire and you want to participate in the federal NDP, you like cannot by their rules, which is ridiculous because no offense to any of the rooms like involved the provincial NDP, um, but like LOL, right? Like they're not real. <laughs> um, and so like it's not, it's an anti-democratic rule and it's also not really a hard and fast rule. Like, so they're like, you can't necessarily kick everyone out of the party that has another party membership. But we don't actually even know who has another party membership because this is all being done quite quietly. And so Elizabeth Cull, who's a former MNA and the chief electoral officer, she's a lobbyist. I saw a lot of people saying that she's a lobbyist for oil and gas. She puts out this report and finds that the uh, Apadurai campaign definitely violated the rules because there cannot be any donations of uh, corporate, and there cannot be corporate donations. But what is so annoying is it's like they change the rules on the fly to say that the, the campaigns themselves assume responsibility for third party campaigns, mm -hmm. which is so funny because it's like, if I wanted to fuck David Eby, like not like that, <laughs> I would just make a group to then do donate and tell people to sign up for him and then sink his candidacy. You know, yeah. like there's a, li a limit to this logic. And you know, in Quebec, we know very, very well, maybe you haven't been uh, targeted by the, the DGAQ, the, the, the overseeing body of elections Quebec. If you're doing progressive activism during an election, you have to be very, very careful because they're like, you cannot, um, you cannot mess this up. You cannot advocate for or against any candidate. And so like the Coalition Sans Pauvreté had to take all of their report card down because they were uh, warned by the DGAQ that it was seen as supporting or not supporting a party. So like that's totally anti-democratic and shitty. But it's not as if like... Quebec Solidaire would have been disqualified because the Coalition Sans Pauvreté said, this is the party with the best platform for poverty. You know, like it's just so bizarre, but this is how they're treating the, um, the Apadura campaign. And so they, they, they shivved her, she's out. And my favorite part, and they're like, and you know what, we're gonna move up the election time. So it's no longer in like four weeks or three weeks, it's now, and Evie's the premier. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Did you miss that? Yeah. <laughs> For the podcast, Sandy made a face. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I didn't realize that they did that too. Yeah, yeah. So John Horgan's last interview today as premier was him being pissy and a baby and saying like, well, like we're not announcing who the provincial executive members are because it's not public who's on the provincial executive of the NDP who made this decision because these Green Party supporters of, of Apadurai are um, bullying and harassing members of the NDP. And then he like cut the press conference short and walked off stage. And it was like, peace, Horgan. That was a really pathetic last press conference. <laughs> wow, okay. Um, we were just talking about how s we know some of these people and like how like, all of personally. this- <laughs> yeah. Like we know them personally and we know these tactics. And how all of this like just, just feels like a awful, fucking twilight zone of being back at a student union in 2007. <laughs> <laughs> this is so dumb because, you know, these sorts of rules, these sorts of weird rules that show up on the fly and weird, oh man, the time, the timelines have shifted. Yep. It's something that we experienced many a time, but it felt like kind of hilarious because the stakes felt lower and it was like, okay, we were talking about, you know, whether we wanted to abolish tuition fees or reduce tuition fees, but this is rudd an entire province. <laughs> I don't understand how they're still doing it. Mm -hmm. Not well. <laughs> Not well. And uh, unless like the BC Liberals really can't get their shit together, I mean, Evie's not going to be winning the next election. So, wow. For everybody to watch, pay attention. To what's going on? Uh, they're like we have. We don't even know if Epidura is taking like making a um, an appeal, right, to say that the whole decision was bullshit and this doesn't follow any proper procedure. By the time this airs, maybe you, you will hear this. I don't know. But um, that's where we are tonight. And I don't want to talk about the BCNDP anymore. No. Um, is there anything else that we want to mention in terms of news? Yes, I do want to say, so everyone saw Legault's new cabinet? <laughs> Boo, yes. Um, I don't want to mention anything uh, beyond the fact that Jean Boulay, did everyone see uh, what cabinet post he got? No. So Boulay was, uh, he was immigration, um, and, he, and Legault was like, he will not have immigration again. So you're like, <gasps> okay, thank God. What would be the other thing that you would give a guy like Boulay with the comments that he's made? You give him labor. Hmm. Give him labor. So he's the labor uh, minister, and for folks who don't know, he made comments during the election about how 80% of immigrants don't get jobs. Um, and so as the labor uh, minister, that seems like Bad, bad news, because he could have gotten nothing, because there's a lot of fucking cacists. <laughs> um, one other final thing, uh, Ontario, if for those of you who are paying attention, um, there are um, negotiations happening right now with mm. education workers who are members of QP and the government. Um, talks have broken down, mediation has broken down, and so they are likely to be in a strike position quite soon. And so that's one to, to, to think about, uh, because we'll have to see if the other education workers unions um, agree not to cross the picket lines, and whether or not um, there is going to be a strong fight back for education workers whose wages have been effectively frozen since essentially 2010. Uh, and with inflation going up and, uh, you know, the, the estimates of the lowest paid education workers, I think, are, being, are making under $40,000 if they're full time. Mm -hmm. Okay. And again, having had those wages effectively frozen since 2010 and then the government in Ontario did pass that bill that also um, uh, freezes wages for public sector workers, uh, even though they're, you know, 
giving all of this money away um, through private partnerships to big industry. So there we are there. So make sure you're still paying attention to that. Mm-hmm. Um, besides that, let's get into it. Let's get into it. All right. So um, how are you all feeling? Are you feeling isolated and alone a little bit? Not right now because we're all together. But loneliness, sadness, it's endemic. Mm-hmm. Everyone's feeling it. I mm-hmm. saw a survey. I mean, we all saw the sex survey thing about men in the United States not doing it anymore, which is like, I mean, kind of a net gain. But anyway. <laughs> um, I did not see the sex survey. What is it? <laughs> it's not what I'm going to mention. Okay. The, there's another survey that came out um, that, uh, that says that one in seven American adults don't have a single friend. Which is, um, I mean, it's not that surprising, right? And so what we thought the best discussion to have tonight was about loneliness, isolation, uh, social isolation, and uh, how we can fight against it. Because it's endemic and it is poison, right? Loneliness is something that can kill. And And it disproportionately affects people who are disabled, who have chronic illness, who uh, are older uh, or younger, actually, there's an interesting loneliness curve where like teenagers and like the over 90 categories are like just as lonely as one another, which is like, hmm, uh, social policy right there, forced friendships, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like that seems like win-win actually. But but it it really is a problem. And and certainly for those uh, those of us on the left, I'm sure you've all felt in organizing, like it's really hard to do like sandy and i've just finished finished a couple of um, months of a lot of travel and presentations and stuff and i have never spoken to so few people uh on so long a distance before yeah and it just feels like people are desperate to 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 do something and not sure what or how to do it yeah during the pandemic when we spoke on our podcast about how it felt um to be Watching all of these debates about how we protect one another and how some people took those debates, took those arguments and thought to themselves, this is a personal choice. And we spoke a lot about how ridiculous that was because humans are not like these individual creatures, like we have been told to think about ourselves our entire lives and throughout like the reign of capitalism. We're taught to think of ourselves as distinct from one another, that we can somehow survive without one another. And the pandemic was such a kick to that ideology. It forced people to understand that when we're sick, we're all sick kind of together. And when we're well, well, we did, the pandemic didn't force us to think about that. And that's what we're trying to do right here, right now, <laughs> is the next piece. The thing about that ideology right now is it's so easy to be tricked by it because the internet is such an available partner to be to to make you think that there is a way out of this isolation that isn't actually making community that isn't actually getting out there and you know whether it's actually getting out there like into a room like this or figuring out ways to to struggle in community with one another over the internet if that's the way you do it um social media and the internet can really make you feel as though okay these are these are friends these are connections that i'm making 
here are a bunch of people that I agree with on a thing. That can be a community. Uh, and I'm not alone. But you still feel fully unfulfilled. And it still feels as though somehow something is deeply missing. I saw this like uh, analysis by um, one of my new favorite scholars, my new, he's not new, one of my favorite scholars, um, Olufemi Taiwu, who mm-hmm. writes. <laughs> okay, so if, you, if you're not reading Olufemi Taiwu, <laughs> get with it, so good. Um, anyway, uh, he was talking about like how hilarious it is that the, the word community doesn't really mean anything anymore. And, uh, you know, people refer to community all the time uh, to talk about, you know, like if we're struggling in community, if we're creating something for community, if we are uh, trying to solve a problem for community. But so much of the way that that has come to, uh, what that has come to mean in the age of digital is like this hyper curated space that we create for each other online that has nothing to do with actual, like an actual struggle with community. Whereas there was a time when community meant that even if Nora was really fucking annoying and I like could not stand her and would want to do the real life equivalent of blocking her, which is, I don't know, what is the real life equivalent of blocking her? It's not like- The silent treatment? Yeah, so <laughs> annoying. Like, if you think about that, like, that's kind of weird <laughs> that so many people just automatically turn to that. But the, but the, you know, the real life equivalent of that doesn't kick Nora out of the community. She's still, like, if we are in a community together, whether that's like, like, like let's say it's a community that is committed to uh, providing food to one another. So we're all a part of this food bank. If Nora comes into the food bank, uh, every Saturday and is a dick to everybody in there. We don't, we can't like, we don't say get out of here. You are banished from the food bank community. You, we don't do that. There is a struggle somehow wherein we recognize that Nora is a fucking human and deserves to eat. So she comes in and we, we, you know, we are like, well, there's Nora again, but that's a part of living together with one another and struggling together with one another is having different kinds of relationships with people, different levels of love for one another, but still committing to being together and struggling together to make life work for one another because we cannot work alone. Humans are inefficient creatures who will die without one another. <laughs> and and we, we have to reject um, this idea that... Uh, you know, there's another version of being in, in relationship to one another that looks like, oh, I don't like you. I'm just going to block you forever. Mm-hmm. I had this really interesting conversation the other night with someone who, like, like I did, grew up in a very small town and had a very small school. And they were saying that they think that there's something that happens when you live in a city where you can pick friends that it changes your perspective, your perception of like relationships. And it had not, I never thought about this, but like from the grade two until grade eight, I had 15 kids in my whole grade. Um, by grade eight, it grew to nine, eight, 18, nine, nine girls, nine boys. 
Um, and like we hated each other. <laughs> we, like I mean, like eighteen kids, like a couple were cousins, um, you know, and they did date each other. Um, and and like I'm just, it wasn't like I was from a tiny, tiny town. The town I'm from is not that small, but it was just this was a small school in an area of town that had very few kids in it. And it is funny because like I uh, like I had four girls to choose from to be my friends. <laughs> and and they're not like me at all. Um, I'm not like them. But it definitely did teach me that you have to just get through this. And I'm, so I was like, yeah, maybe in the city, if you you know you can fight me, like you're you're from a city, uh, in a way. But it, it allowed me to. I mean, Brampton is like kind of a city. I am not from Brampton. She hates when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, my passport says Scarborough. I l grew up mostly in North York. I am not from Brampton. <laughs> you were in Brampton in like the most like friendship important years. Nope. What? Like high school? That, how is that the most friendship important years? Okay, I just want to be very clear. <laughs> I lived in Brampton, and you know, Brampton's not that bad. I rag on it, but it's not that bad. I, went, I lived no. in Brampton from grade 10 to grade 12, and I don't speak to any of those people anymore. But I did create a community in high school, and we sure. struggled together, I guess, whatever. But I don't speak to any of those people anymore. Maybe that is proving your point. But, <laughs> but I am friends with everyone from middle school still. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, unfortunately, I can't say the same thing because we kind of all went into different locations and it's been really hard to keep track of, any, of anybody. But um, it just allowed me to start thinking a little bit more about the politics of disposability and what individualism yeah. has done to us and how we don't really think about it. You know, so it's like my social media is curated by me and corporations. And every one of my conversations that I have on social media makes someone money. So whether I'm talking to my mother, my friends, someone who's asking me to do something, someone who I'm asking to do something, my teammates, my whatever, somebody is making money off of those conversations. Mm -hmm. And those conversations are only in text. And so that means that I'm like me personally, I'm very good in text. I'm very comfortable. That's fine. Other people, not so good. The expression is a little bit awkward. Can't get intention. Can't see like they're joking. Can't look at their face. Can't have body language. Can't be in this space where everyone's really hot and so everyone's cranky. You know, like there's a lot of of, of like ambient elements to to communications that are sanitized off of these platforms. And like when I was a kid and we didn't have the internet um, because I'm that old. We like it was it, it wasn't replacing anything in real life because it was like we had real life. It was just like, oh, my God, I can talk to someone in the same room through typing. That is so wild. <laughs> and so that's what we did. We sat in like the one kind of like the couple of computers that we had in my school and we talked to one another and we're like, holy shit, we're on the Internet. I'm going to look up song lyrics. <laughs> which is literally all I did for grade seven and grade eight. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so it wasn't, we, at that point, it was, was add-on to our life. That was, like, that was new, and we had a life, and we were adding on to it. We are now in a world where it is our life. Like, that is our existence. And we don't interrogate what happens when I have my perfectly curated existence, curated by me, and what I interact with. So what the, you know, I said to someone today, oh, I'm walking from Concordia to uh, Beaubien Station. And he said to me, well, I hope you have good shoes. And I said, well, I'm wearing the Doc Martens that my parents gave me when I graduated from grade 13. And then my Facebook is full of Doc Martens ads. 
for the yeah. first time, I've like what I've never had that right in different browsers, not on Facebook. The conversation was on Twitter, so you know we, we then so this gets these walls get put around ourselves, and and even though Sandy and I have a lot of mutual friends and have a lot of perspectives that are similar, our social media. If I log into her account, I'll be like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, where's the break? I don't know what the hell. You know, like it's it's actually very 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 individualized, and so what I think is so interesting right now is people are are flocking to new kinds of communications online that are trying to better integrate text and voice and video. Like Twitch is great because you've got this community. You're talking to each other. You're watching something else. What you're watching is stimulating because it's either. A, a guy playing a, a video game or something, uh, or a conversation, but it's multi-sensory, right? And that's the way that they're that they're going to try and hook us into even more involved conversations with one another, absolutely ensuring that they're profiting off of every one of our conversations, and then making it such that when we do get into real life with one another, we're like, "What the fuck is going on with their forehead?" <laughs> And it's like that the forehead can talk as well. The forehead moves the eyebrows and the eyes. There's expression there. Did you know that? <laughs> and I, then you, I think so for there is some laughter there. I think there is some stuff happening with my forehead potentially and <laughs> Your forehead in response as I was responding to what you just said. Our foreheads were talking to each other. That is correct. <laughs> you know, because I, I think of my aunt who taught, who taught uh, grade one, and she said that they would have to put kids together, chairs facing each other, and leave them and try to teach them how to communicate. Wow. That this was something that over her entire, you know, 35-year career or whatever, this was the first, they, the first, like the last years of her career, they had to put children sitting face-to-face in teaching them what's an angry face, what's a happy face, how do you, how do you feel what someone else might be putting out there? I mean, it, I, the the consequences of this are so enormous. I, I feel so like, you know, the amount of people. You know, as many of you know, I've recently graduated from law school, and I uh, like went to as an older person who went to law school. I went to law school with a lot of people who were like quite a lot younger than me. And if there is a generational shift, just indulge me for a second, that I'm <laughs> noticing, I think that we as a culture, as a society, are becoming way less comfortable arguing with one another. Oh, uh, yeah. I think that's huge, right. Huge. Huge. There's so much fear and nervousness to disagree about anything because we are really used to, as a result of our super highly curated, trying to sell us shit social medias that we live in so often, we are super used to being in agreement with everything that we see. And even when we are upset about something, we are upset in agreement with a whole bunch of other people about the thing that we're upset about. And so when we see either like two people that we like agree, like we're like, oh, those two people are cool and they're like disagreeing with each other online. It's like, what do we do? Like, who do we, who do we trust? Like, is that person a good person anymore? Like the, the questions, the stakes become so much higher because we're not used to disagreeing with one another. But disagreement and argument is where innovation in society comes from. That is where pushing forward on any issue that is facing humanity 
forever. That is how we move forward on things. That is how we come up with better ideas. It's by disagreeing with each other and figuring out through the tensions what the best way is to move forward or maybe it's not the best way but trying something new that we haven't thought of before because fuck, we need to work together to work all of these things out. And the consequence for those of us who are activists, for those of us who have taken on this wild sort of we're going to change this world um, call in this level of capitalism, at this stage of colonialism, at this stage of like the world, I mean, gosh, we're in really bad straits, clearly. Like, I think the organizing of the left in this country, but also around the world, is really shitty. And this is a huge piece of the problem. We don't know how to disagree with one another. And as someone who, like, came up in activism, like, just disagreeing with everyone all the time in a way that felt so soul-destroying, like, I really miss it. Mm -hmm. Well, and we've told this story before, but Sandy and I, when we used to work in the same office, which was, it feels like a flash of, like, two stars meeting and then going the other direction. Remember how nice that was? <laughs> Those two years that we had? What? <laughs> Sandy's on this thing where she thinks that I'm getting, like, uh, senile with my star analogies, which might be true. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, but we used to debate strategy all the time. Mm-hmm. But we would do it behind closed doors. And so the two of us would debate strategy and debate and debate and debate and get on the same page. And when we left that room, we would then enter our office with the other people we worked with. And people would see us like with suspicion because we were always on the same page. And it's like, well, there's no, we cannot debate. You folks, this is not a place where debate is happening. And so we're going to have that debate. And then when we leave the, our debate and enter this bigger space, yeah, we're going to be on the same page because we've actually identified all of the possible reasons for this might be a bad idea or this is a good idea and this is what we've come to. And I really, I really value that. we also always that. had the best ideas because well, that of that, like, which yeah. made us probably very annoying for some people. But it was like such a really, it was such a great way to approach just everything that we were trying to do. Like, I remember the very first time, like, I really was working with you. Like, I had written something up, like, some opinion, something that I'd written. And Nora, like, goes to check it, take a look at it, and she, like, fucking tore it to pieces. Like, when I say, like, there was red marker all over it, not just as an edit, but she wrote things like, what the fuck are you talking about on the piece of paper? And I was like, I love you. Like, this is so great. We're going to work so well together because... It was in that that I could be like, actually, how the fuck don't you get this? And then we could struggle together to figure out, again, like some of the best ways forward. Mm-hmm. And because everybody else in the office was kind of like like on some fucking weird obedience kick, we were like, <laughs> it was very strange. It was like, it was really great to be able to be, to, to have uh, someone who was as committed to... Uh, you know, having these arguments, but not in a way that was like, now I'm never going to talk to you again. (laughs) Because, you know, like the stakes are higher than my personal ego and whether or not I'm going to like have a coffee with Nora the next morning. Like the stakes are higher than that. And at that point, we're talking about like, you know, fucking tuition fees and whether or not there's a prayer space on campus. Like, and now we're here in the world talking about like, things that are just as big or way, way bigger or sometimes smaller. And it just feels like for so much, much of it, we, we can't do, we can't do that 
argumentation. Mm. I was um, talking last night at Concordia, got to shout out the Concordia Students Union for making this whole thing happen because I'm in Montreal because of them and Sandy was in Ottawa, so that's why this show came together. So thank you, CSU. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was doing a presentation yesterday on fake news. And so for almost two hours, we talked about fake news and real news and like the interaction between those two things. And at the end of the presentation, someone came up to me and, and explained what they're doing and asked how they can change the world. Basically, like, how can I change what I dislike about the world? How can I do these things and make the change that I want to see? And I was like, you can't. Like, you personally can not. You can't. I can't. Sandy can't. Like, that is not how change happens. And it's so easy to forget that in a world where uh, Justin Trudeau is the head of Canada and Pierre Polyever is the evil guy and Putin is Hitler, right? All of these ridiculous things that we boil into these individualisms. Um, you know, how many of you learned about the great man theory of history? Right? Like, I think I had to write essays on literally the great man theory of history, which is history is just a series of actions of so-called great men. And they'd be like, oh, you know, they call it great men, but it's like there's some women in it too. Right? And it's like, no, there's not. <laughs> there's no fucking women in this at all. What the hell are you talking about? Um, but that's a lie, right? And it's a lie that has been so uh, viciously sold to us that... It is, it's now normal. Like we now have what, four generations of people who have been born under this regime of you just have to do the right thing. You just have to pick the right tactic, use the right words, be the nicest person, don't fucking hurt people, and you'll change the world. Your actions will change the world. Be the change you want to see in the world. Right? Change your light bulbs to energy efficient ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, even it's though they the fucking thing. burn out all the time. And it's like, <laughs> what the fuck is that? And, um, and that's a lie. That is not how it works. It absolutely it has never worked like that, and it does not work like that. And the reason why we see individual celebrity activists put forward as being symbols of change is to convince us that that's how it works. And so when you have that as the, as the model for social change, combined with the fact that we're all like in these silos online, and then you sit back and you're like, like fuck, like, I can't do anything. And then it becomes your personal failure that you can't do anything. And then you're dealing with like failure and shame and frustration with yourself for not being clever enough or not having enough time or being too tired to be able to do it and not having the stamina that you might see other people having around you. Or just not being able to figure it out when like Greta Thunberg has. So like, who am I? You know, like yeah, it, fuck. It, it is meant it kind of is set up to make you feel like shit the whole time. But you can't like it's it's a big lie. You can't. Do it alone. Greta Thunberg isn't doing it alone. Even Kanye West isn't doing whatever the fuck he's doing alone. <laughs> like, no one does this shit alone. And the idea that you can is a, is a huge lie that's been sold to all of us um, throughout our whole lives and is, like, way more intense working on us right now. And so coming out of, of this period of lockdowns where we are going to be challenged to come back into relation with one another 
we have to be really careful about what lies, like how we are interpreting what messages are being told to us about what it is that we do next about all of the things that are facing us. I think you can applaud there. I am very... I am very, very distressed that I forgot to say, hey, Nora, <laughs> at the beginning of this. You what? I forgot to say, hey, Nora. You're stressed by that? Oh, distressed. <sighs> Not stressed. Hey, Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> 